悪いでしょう。Greetings, ladies, gentlemen, and NBs. Welcome, friends. It's an episode of Waterway Desho After Hours,、uh, but a very special After Hours episode, a focused one. Typically on this show, we just kind of do a whip round and talk about whatever、uh, each of us are into. And, you know,、uh, there's a lot of topics covered, a lot of different pieces of media talked about. But on this episode, we're only going to be talking about one. And that is Alita colon, Battle Angel. And I'm the Subtle Doctor, and along for the ride with me, as always, is the hardest working man in pod business, Shadon. Good evening, everyone.、Uh, this is certainly a different kettle of fish than I'm used to. I mean, for a start, we're covering something that is live action, which, you know. Weird. I mean, I thought when I started watching this show, because it was,、oh, sorry, this film, rather, because it was live action, I felt like, you know. My skin would start melting, and like you know, I'd have the rea- the、uh, end of you know Raiders of the Lost Ark reaction, the same the Nazis did to open the、uh, Covenant, Ark of the Covenant. But I appear to have survived, and I'm here to talk about this film today. So that's certainly something. Yeah, we've never really taken on、uh, a live action show as a podcast topic. We never put one under the microscope up to this point. But it is, you know, an adaptation of a you know long running manga. It is,、uh, and, and there was an anime as well. There was a an OAV, and we'll we'll talk about all that stuff momentarily. But but yeah,、um, look, this show is all going to be all about、uh, Alita and what we thought of it. It's the one year anniversary. If you are hearing this on the public feed,、uh, the day it drops, January thirty first, will be in twenty nineteen, the year that、uh, the film debuted in. In England, I forget exactly where because I don't have the Wikipedia page open in front of me. But but that was the world premiere. Was it、um, Leicester Square, it, if I recall correctly? Yep, that is correct. Thank you, thank you, Shadon. Leicester Square, and then the film, of course,、uh, dropped for U.S. audiences, I believe, on Valentine's Day or, or close to it. So shortly after the world premiere,、um, and I, quite frankly, am、uh, genuinely shocked that I saw this movie get made in my lifetime. Um, for many reasons, not least of which is、um, back in the '90s, even Shadon, when I first got internet, in like you know '98,、mm-hmm. 2000, right around there, and I was like getting into the message boards. I was like a member of Anime Suki Forum and going on Anime Nation to look at that site doesn't even exist anymore,、uh, <laughs> but and an Anime News Network, right?、Um, even back then, you would hear that this famous Hollywood director with all kinds of money and clout could do whatever he wanted. James Cameron, he loves Battle Angel Alita, and、uh, he's gonna do a movie of it someday. But it just was like, okay, this is never gonna happen. And then he did Avatar, and it's like, well, he'll be in Avatar hell forever,、uh, so he'll never do this movie. But he fucking got made. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> yeah, he's still there. He had a brief. He came up for air briefly. But with his work on this movie, and then he's plunged back down and submerged himself in、uh, it, it within the、uh, the blue furry ocean.、Mm-hmm. Um, but look, we're not here to talk about Avatar or really the career of James Cameron. We're here to talk about Alita. I reckon that、um, that career might be more relevant that you're giving it credit for, though. But we'll come to that. Okay, sure. Yes,、um, and that's probably an area that you might be. 
Oh, I'm intimately I. familiar with that. Y- you love you love the James Cameron. Um, to a point. <laughs> uh, Jimbo, you got to tighten it up there, buddy. Um, well, when his ship sank, he never really came back from under the water, if you know what I mean. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, too easy. So, uh, were you familiar at all with Alita before you checked this movie out? Much like everything else I've ever encountered in anime spheres or, like, you know, <laughs> in general, it's something that I had passing knowledge of. Um, and that is really about it. I have never read any of the manga. I have never watched the OAV. I simply know it as a thing that exists uh, as an original property from Japan that was adapted since this film. And that's where my knowledge really starts and ends. I went into this film about as cold as you could possibly get, short of having never heard of it to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, contrasted to that, um, I have been pretty familiar with utter, utter, utter other iterations of Alita. They showed the OAV Battle Angel, which is, Shadan, is really funny because in this moment, like, preparing for this show, it never really hit me that, like, they never say the word Alita in this OAV. Like, her name, at least in the English dub that I saw, is Galley. Now, they could have called her Alita in the sub, uh, to be fair, I've never actually seen it, but like, and they change Hugo. Yes, Hugo is a is a character in this OAV and in the manga as well. They change his name to Hugo. Mm-hmm. It looks like in both versions, according to the Wikipedia article that I'm scanning. Um, but yeah, I saw this on the Sci Fi Channel. Um, <laughs> and like, yeah, the, well, look, they would show. They did a great thing. I mean, look, we can dunk on the Sci Fi Channel, though they did give us Raptor Island, one of the. <laughs> One of the great things. I only need to period. laugh and everyone knows. <laughs> they did give us uh, Basilisk versus, you know, insert other large animal. <laughs> I don't know. But but they did a thing for a while where they would show. They, they tried different anime blocks. And uh, they I remember in the late uh, early uh, 2010s, they had like a Friday night anime block. But... But back when I'm talking about in the early aughts, they had a, um, or maybe even late 90s, they had like a Saturday morning thing. Mm. And because, uh, you know, <clears throat> that's when you want to be showing uh, Iria Zerum, the animation, to, to kids getting up on Saturday mornings because they need to see human beings getting gutted by a, a weird xenomorphic creature and Alita taking a shower. You know, that's the content that'll rope the kids in. I mean, for sure. Why not? You know, I saw all that. Why not? Sh- I saw that shit totally. kind of shit all the time when I was, you know, waking up on Saturday <laughs> mornings, like, and super young. And it's done no harm to me. Wait. <laughs> None whatsoever. Wait a minute. Oh, man. But, like, uh, but yeah, I saw this Battle Angel OAV uh, Hiroshi uh, Fukutomi directed thing. Um, oh, Rintaro supervised this. I didn't know that. Rintaro. Um, he uh, directed the 70s um, Space Pirate Captain Harlock TV show, which ah. is great. And some other weird-ass shit, but R- Rintaro's a divisive guy <laughs> when it comes to his... But, but we should talk about Rintaro another time. Anyway, so I saw Battle Angel as a kid, and I was just like, what the fuck, man? I, I don't... This... I'm not really feeling this. It's very sad. It's a very grim story, and also it just kind of ends without a lot of resolution, uh, and it turns out, I didn't know then, but it turns out that this Battle Angel OAV uh, was basically an advertisement for the Gunmu, Gunmu, um, 
G-U-N-N-M, pronounced Ganmu, which is gun dream in Japanese, or as it will be called over here, Battle Angel Alita. Um, is an advertisement for that manga, a much longer manga, of which the OAV is only like the first chapter. I mean, uh, not chapter, sorry, the first volume, maybe two. Um, certainly the OAV does not get into anything where Alita is a pro motorball player. Mm. Um, and, uh, so, but yeah, I, I, one day in college, um, I don't know why, but I was like, oh, Battle Angel Alita. I remember Battle Angel. Um, I remember that OAV. Like it was, I'm kind of in the mood for something dark and depressing. And (laughs) I just dove into the manga and, oh, it was so fucking good, dude. And I didn't even realize at the time how different, like looking back, that manga and even this movie, like the, the adaptation of it, it's this like different thing than a lot of anime. Man, like it just it it feels just so grimy and so bloody and and gritty and it's got like a smell to it. You know what I mean? Mm. You can almost like smell the I don't know the oil you put in the robots joints and the the city grime and um yeah, all that stuff like uh it just felt more like uh looking back on it it just seems more like uh I don't know something Frank Miller would do as opposed to like something a, a manga guy would put out and the manga author Kashiro um, was, among other people, influenced by Frank Miller uh, at different points. Ah, uh, that's that's career. an unfortunate person to be influenced by, depending on what time uh, of the I know of, of the past couple of decades you chose to be influenced by. Yeah, uh, we're talking early nineties. We're talking because the mm, manga the manga ran from nineteen ninety to nineteen ninety five. The original Gunmu manga. Um, there are some sequel manga Shadan. Um, in 1995, uh, Kishiro ended Battle Angel Alita, Ganmu, um, and he stopped doing manga altogether. Um, was he devoured by Idolmaster? No, <laughs> no. I mean, that's, that, no, that's no, the, no. The, the great, the great, like, white whale of all manga car everywhere. It's <laughs> always like, oh, the Kentaro Miura problem. No, um... Unfortunately, like uh, Kishiro had was experiencing such a high level of stress that, like he says, that even just hearing the sound of rain on a roof drop, a, a, a rooftop, was like enough to like send him into a rage. Like he was like the the thought of like he would look at a blank piece of paper and understand he had to draw something on it and be filled with dread. Like he, it was physically manifesting itself. I mean, he he didn't go to a doctor, so he doesn't know if he had anything, but he said that he imagines if he did go to the doctor, he had a diagnosable illness um, that was induced by stress. Mm. So he stopped doing Alita. It kind of ended it. And uh, luckily for Alita fans, like it was structured in this way where every volume was kind of not its own thing, because you were following a character's trajectory, but largely self-contained, like the volumes would end in a not super cliffhangery place. Hmm. Um, and so when he ended it, you know, it was like not the most dissatisfying thing ever. And it was running in Business Jump, um, a magazine for older, like 30-something men. So he didn't want to make a long serialized thing. But then once he got better in, uh, I believe, around like the year 2000, um, he started up uh, 
no, actually, it's it's uh no, yeah, it is two thousand. I see. It had two different runnings. I was confused by the dates. He started up Battle Angel Alita Last Order, which is the sequel that takes place in space. And then he did also Battle Angel Alita Mars Chronicle, which is still running currently. So Kishiro, something he started back then. Wow. Still working on it to this day. That is impressive. <laughs> among other projects. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad, yeah, he, I'm glad he's better anyway, if nothing else. Like, you know, it's the point where he was able to take that up again. Um, that is definitely good for him. Totally. Totally. So, um, and and... I don't know if Cameron saw the OAV or not, but he certainly loved the manga, mm. right? And he and it influenced like Dark Angel, you know, stuff that he worked on, and like he was super into it. Like I said, and had been saying for years that he was going to make it. But luckily, luckily, uh, Robert Rodriguez ah yes came along, and so he directed this 2019 film. And Cameron produced and I believe wrote it. And I don't know really too much about the production history itself of the movie. This podcast is mainly going to be about our analysis of the movie and our reactions to it, much more than uh, it is about kind of the behind the scenes of of the films. Yeah, I will add, though, just from my perspective, I am surprised that this film got made. Not because, again, of anything about the material inherently in of itself, because I don't know anything about it, but rather because, well... This I, I apologize. I make this comparison not because I want to compare the franchises that I'm about to mention as a whole, but just the Hollywood history, or rather their history in Hollywood. You recall the Ghost in the Shell live action adaptation from 2017? I wish I didn't. That did not end I, well. No. Now, I again, I only make the comparison because I can see, like, you know, if you're a Hollywood exec and you're saying, all right, do we greenlit Elisa Battle Angel? And you look at Ghost in the Shell, a property that I'm certainly more intimately familiar with, before anything else than Elise Rebel was. And you might think, well, that didn't do well. So let's not do this. So it Sure. I can see I it's can not see just that. uh it's not just that they're both sort of anime or or even manga. It's that they they both are like gritty cyberpunk stories that yeah. are anime that came to prominence. Or in even the 90s. Blade Runner twenty forty two. Amazing <clears throat> film, <throat> but not a critic sorry not a commercial success um and bear in mind blade runner 2042 was following a cult classic western cult classic so uh, weird how yeah, that did not do better i think uh, there's so many factors that go into it. and indeed i i think i'm going to be discussing some of the because i i have to confess i do have issues with battle angel elisa but some of them i think are kind of unfortunate and inevitable in, in a sense but i'll get to that later and the, the yeah. problems that they're the problems that Ghost in the Shell 2017 and Blade Runner 2042 had as well, and a lot of other mm. films of their ilk. But I'll save that for when we discuss it. But yeah, yeah it's certainly good on them for doing it rather than just producing the same old dreck we always get. Um, but it's certainly not that. This movie is is definitely it is anti the same old dreck. Yeah, I would I would agree for a number of reasons, uh, which I also think might explain why it didn't play well to conventional audiences. Because I would not necessarily call this a conventional film per se but again i'm going to save that for discussion um yeah but cameron like i mean rodriguez he's known as an action director i mean he did predators which i hated but that's neither <laughs> uh he also he also did machete which i quite liked uh that was in that film was nuts and it was great for it but like rodriguez like he is absolutely an action man like he he can do 
fantastic action scenes. Uh, Predators I just disliked because it was just, well, not interesting outside of the action, and it was just a bit of a crappy spin-off, in my opinion. And Cameron, like, well, I... If you know anything about Cameron, you know that he's most famous for his original sci-fi works that he did in the uh, 80s and 90s, particularly Terminator, particularly Alien, uh, Aliens, rather, I mean to say. Yeah. Uh, in my opinion, however, everything he's done since Titanic, which in of itself I liked, but it's not really meant for me, to be honest, anyway, is because of who I am. I mean, that's fair, you know, not everything should be for me, but everything he's done since then, including Avatar, has been pants. Absolutely, oh, I, I didn't mind. I liked Avatar, all right. Avatar. Well, let me let me let me, let me qualify that. I really liked the experience of yeah. seeing Avatar in I, the movie theater. I, I watched it. In I've 3D. never, yeah, I've never wanted to like go back and watch it. But just the, to, like, the story was completely story, pedestrian yeah. and interesting. And funnily enough, Avatar has some of the same problems that Battle Angel Elisa does, in my opinion, in terms oh, of story structure. Well, look, you keep talking about problems. We're going to talk about good things. Oh yeah, I do. Too. I do have good Listen. things. It is a because it's a good movie, and I'm glad that it it you know broke even. It looks like it maybe made a a teeny bit of money in terms of the worldwide. Yeah, uh, it played well in China for sure. According to um, the stats I'm looking at here on Wikipedia, it uh, it looks like there was a. It says estimates vary for a total worldwide gross the film needed in order to break even. With Fox Insider stating 350 million, but outside financial publications pegging the amount around four to five hundred million, and it made 85 million, 85.7 million in the U.S. and 319 million in other territories. So, depending on whose estimate you believe, it broke even or um, was just shy of that. So, I mean, at least it didn't lose a ton of money, even if it didn't. And I think, I think this movie, speaking of cult classics like Blade Runner. I think this movie will go on to be yeah. a cult favorite Give it- for sure. Much more, more like the the Wachowski brothers Speed Racer. Speaking of anime adaptations, yeah, than Ghost there in the Shell. We go. Yeah, I mean Hollywood, like the history of films like this that are adapt are adapted from uh, Japanese properties, particularly the more esoteric ones. Because I mean, Ghost in the Shell, well known. Um, I would argue, relatively speaking, still niche in its own right, though. Speed Racer, perhaps not so much. Um, you know. Prior to it depends on how old you are. It it really depends, but when you even have to qualify that with it depends, that's a gamble right. in of itself. And Hollywood right. is not known for taking risks on this kind of stuff. I mean, when Batman v Superman is considered a bomb because it doesn't really break a billion or even Justice League for that matter, and they're pretty bankable. Like the cards are close to the chest when it comes to stuff. So I don't get me wrong though. I am very glad that it was made. I'm just surprised more than anything. But hey, good on them for doing it rather than playing it safe. All right. But totally. yeah, I do have problems with the film, but I do think that there's a lot to like in as well, and a lot that's unconventional in a good way, um, which I really appreciate. But I also have to say, like, some of the problems it has, like, I think are just... They're just kind of unavoidable in a sense, I suppose. Like, I feel like this may have served better not as a film, but instead as a full-blown TV series, if you will. Uh, for oh, more boy, I would love that. I think um, that would oh, work for more runtime. Let me take just a moment to... We've kind of alluded to this already, but um, our experience with the franchise as a whole. But I, I want to take just a moment to say up front our our kind of credentials or <sighs> credentials is not the right word, but our experience with this movie in particular. This is the first time you and I have seen it. Mm-hmm. As as big a fan of the, and I I if I didn't state this outright, I'm a big fan of the manga. 
a mm-hmm. really big fan, even though I haven't completed it. But it's just been because uh, I have both times I've set out to read it, I have been doing so at libraries that did not have the full mm-hmm. thing. And I just haven't had a chance to purchase the 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 run of it, let alone Last Order and the the Mars one. But um, but I really really like it, and I've grown to really like the OAV uh, as well. But this is the first time I have have gotten around to seeing the film. I bought it, um, the Blu-ray version of it, uh, for myself a couple months ago. But because you know this anniversary was coming up, I was like, okay, I need to sit down and watch this movie now. Um. We're both going to be coming at this from the perspective of two people who've just seen it for the first time rather than two people revisiting something that they're intimately familiar with. And I will be coming at this from uh, the point of view of someone who is um, looking at it as an adaptation Mm. of a thing that I really like. And I want to stress that anytime I talk about adaptational choices that were made in the context of this movie they're by default not going to be a criticism. I'm just going to be talking about it to be informative, if to no one else, than to you, Shadon, yeah. who's not familiar with it. I strongly um, suspect a lot of what you'll tell me about the adaptation process from the manga to the film will offer a lot of clarity to some of the issues that I have uh, with the film itself. Because that's always going to be a thing, you know? There's going to be things that are left out, lost in translation, changed for one reason or other. I mean, we all know the debacle, for example, about Ghost in the Shell 2017 and how they changed the Mage's identity from the outset, um, mm-hmm. you know, to someone named Killian or some rubbish like that. And then it's like, <laughs> yeah, really, really, that was a thing. Be- to, to, to hand wave away the fact that it was ScarJo playing uh, the Major. Uh, oh by, by the way, I just want to point one quick thing out, uh, again, just to establish my viewpoint and adaptation. I actually don't mind that change in a vacuum if they try to do anything with it about the actual race politics involved with that. You know, change, mm-hmm. you know, how you take a Japanese girl and put her in the body of a Caucasian woman and what does that mean for the erasure of her cultural identity and also just general racial identity. That's not what happened in that film, of course, because it really was just a loose excuse to put ScarJo in a role that should really have gone to an Asian actress. But I, that's my, my point, basically. I don't mind changes being made to source material if they are in service of making the actual story better as a result while keeping to the spirit of it. That change Mm. was bollocks. So that's... Yeah. I hope that kind of gives you would-be audience who may not know of us otherwise how I ultimately feel about these kind of things. And also that I don't really hold back when I have like some really sharp criticism to give. So uh, I promise you, however, my criticisms at least are going to be very, very tender. I'm going to be like, you know, approaching it softly, gently. Well, and... I think, generally speaking, I I like a lot of the adaptational choices, not because I think this is like like the definitive version of Alita, but but actually because I think that they really help to make it its own thing. I actually think Alita Battle Angel, if it spawns, I pray to God that spawns some sequels because it sure does end in a way that says, "Yep, this movie needs a sequel." But like. You know, it could really just turn into something that is, you know, a similar story, but just a different telling of it. Mm-hmm. And I really like that. I, I It does feel, in a lot of ways, different from the source material. I mean, but clearly still drawing from it. So the, the characters are the same, the names are the same, all that good stuff. But, like, just something about the spirit of it and the chronology um, and the look and, and feel of it 
I mean, it just feels more more uh, more James Cameron, more Hollywood than than Kishiro. And again, I think that serves to make it to to help it stand on its own. Hmm. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll get into the nitty gritty of that. So, all right, Shadon, um, tell me what you thought of this movie. All right, I'll get one of my criticisms out of the way now. And this is to uh, elaborate more on why I feel is an uphill battle that films like this face pretty much from the get-go. So much of the dialogue in this film is expository in nature and it doesn't work for me. A lot of it doesn't anyway. Like when they're explaining, for example, like, hey, there's the floating city in the sky or, you know, it's terrible down here or, you know, this is what this body does, um, you know. And the thing is, right, when you structure a film or a story and you have this world that people are not inherently familiar with, like you and me, Doc, regular Joes. Well, I'm a regular Joe because that's actually my first name, as it turns out. <laughs> not regular Joe, mind you, just Joe. But um, I've been to Scrap Iron City. I know what, what it is. I am sure you I'm have. Familiar. You didn't bring me back a present <laughs> from it either, man. I'm still sore over that. God damn well, it. Well, I, I did, but it tried to eat me. So uh, mate, Oh, so you're trying to kill me then? Well, thanks No, much, I man. didn't know. That's why I threw it out. Oh, fuck's sake, man. What do you think I am? Jesus. Okay, so, like, when you have an environment that we as an audience are not familiar with because it is fictional, it needs to be explained to us in a certain way. And certainly the structure of how Elisa works uh, as a film does lend, lend itself to that. Elisa herself is amnesiac, so it makes sense for things to be explained to her because she then serves as the audience proxy. When she learns something, we learn something too. It's not necessarily clunky for the sake of, you know, just getting in to explain stuff to us. But I do feel that some of what happens in this film is just way too heavy on explaining the world verbally rather than having it be shown to us. And, mm. for example, I didn't get a strong impression that Iron City was all that bad. Now, you might say to me, but there's like murderous bounty hunters and stuff like that. But it's also pretty colourful in its own right. And again, you may say that's the point. But considering the big like goal of the film is to get to the floating city of, um, I think it was called Zalem. And right. And we don't even see Zalem firsthand either. Uh, we just in, know um, we just know it's better, but that's not enough for me. In some old translations of the manga or old copies of it, um, at least the ones I remember reading, it was Typharis. But I think that's since been updated to make it Zalem all the way across the board. I think any new those those fancy schmancy hardback copies of uh, Battle Angel Alita. And in the OAV as well, the floating city is called Zalem. So they've universalized that across the board now. Hmm. So, yeah, we, we get a lot of continual exposition as the movie goes on. And I feel so much of it could have been replaced by showing us first time. I mean, for example, we've got um, Zapan, who is uh, played by Ed Scribe, who you might recall, <laughs> you might recall, by the way, is playing Francis from Deadpool. Uh and he was great in that, and he's <laughs> yes. great in this too. Uh, he rules in this movie. He's great. Uh -huh. So he has a sword, and he says his sword is like home to a monofilament point, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, that it's is the complete... Damascus point. Yeah, yeah, it's completely and utterly up, like unnecessary to have him explain in such great detail how sharp his sword is. Just show it <laughs> first. Yeah, yeah, ha, ha, ha. Ha, ha, ha. Very funny. But just show us, like, show it like cleaving through a robot or something. That's the mm. that's the core problem I have with a lot of the, the like, exposition in this film. It's told, not shown, and it keeps on going even into the film's second and third acts. Which yeah, is a that problem. that instance you're speaking of may be one of those deals where, like, you know, the creators are just really in love with the lore of the show, <laughs> so they want to tell you about it. 
Um, because mm. maybe he, I, I don't remember exactly, but maybe he's maybe he had that line in the in the comics. But he's certainly a character, and uh, and uh, he he lasts uh, he lasts a while. Although I don't know if they introduce him. So here's the funny thing about this, uh, and I'll, I'll let you get back to your your point if you have more examples in just a second. But the funny thing about this adaptation, Shadon, is um they the the movie wants to give you everything like mm-hmm. they want to give you all these different aspects of Alita's journey like they want to bring them all into this movie and and put them all in the same space at the same time so for instance um Hugo who is uh I think the the actor does a great job of yeah. playing Hugo. Um, I don't have his name in front of me. Uh, Kean Johnson. Thank you, but I think he's he's great. Um, and we should talk about him more because I actually think he's way more likable in this movie than than Hugo in the manga or in the OAV. Who is there, um, there's a lot to his character surprisingly that I think ties into one of the film's themes. Uh, although I will also say that after a certain point in the film. There is a very clear instance to me of what feels like compression of time, if you will, where oh, there's totally. a missed opportunity for them to do something really, really interesting with him that, that just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll explain it when we get to that point. Um, okay. But yeah, like but he did. But you know, he did. Like, there's, for instance, um, the, the Alita as it's as it's done in the book. Um, and again, this is not me saying the book is better, but just to be informative, um, motorball is not a thing until after Hugo's death spoilers ah. um it is the thing that she does to vent her rage and anger at Hugo at losing him she goes to kind of a darker place and is just like fuck everything i'm going to be a pro motorball player and cut the fuck out of some cyborgs it's awesome and um and like the whole business about um you know, gosh, the whole bit about her being number 99 and, you know, being part of this uh, army that was trying to, um, you know, take down Nova, Desti Nova, by the way, full name. Um, great, great name, Desti Nova. <laughs> um, none of that is revealed in the first, like, four or five volumes of the manga. Mm. So like you kind of get the situation where again, the adaptation again, they want to do all the cool show, all the cool stuff that the great leaders about. Yeah. Um, and I get that. And I think again, it helps to contribute to this is its own thing. This is just Cameron and Rodriguez's retelling of the story. Um, but it does create some of those, those situations you're talking about. I think, um, where that there's just, you know, if they had stripped it down and made it more of like fewer characters, fewer situations, fewer things that need to be explained. Like for instance, she doesn't get her berserker body for for a while. Yeah, that instance. that berserker body um, has a problem all of its own, actually. But I'll get to that separately. Um, so, Ty, so but I've but just anyway, said. um, I so I sorry, I this was a whole digression of again. I'm gonna be fucking that manga guy that's like well actually here's how it was in the original um but, <laughs> but no 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 so i'll throw it back to you so so you're 
you're saying that there is too much uh too much exposition yeah but funnily enough i as i say though i think a lot of that is just the price of doing business so to speak in this format because it has a two-hour runtime which i actually think is fairly generous because when i say that the optimal runtime, and this is something that Fox was guilty for for a long time. Uh, da, da, da. Don't you just mean 20th Century Studios? Something like that. This Disney has uh, said X-Nay on the Oxfair. Aye, that they have. <laughs> but this this was way, this was like back when Fox were like one of the biggest studios, like wait, just like in the turn of the first of, of the millennium. Like okay. they were kind of guilty of making their films deliberately 90 minutes long maximum so they could optimize getting as many viewings in theaters as possible in a given day. Huh. The longer a film runs, the less times you can show it in a given day. And this that's is just why, math. Yeah, that's just math. So <laughs> any film that's over 90 minutes is already blessed with a with an extra amount of runtime. And yet I think Elisa could have had a little bit more. Um, because there's particular things, especially in the uh, ending section of the, of the film, the third act, that I feel should have expanded on Hugo being one of them, particularly his time after he gets a cyborg body, because it feels like we go from him getting that to him then dying in such a short amount of time. And I feel it's a real missed opportunity for his character, as someone who previously lived stealing cyborg parts, to now be a full cyborg, and to have that moment where he could have reflected on that. That could have been really, really powerful, I think. But that well, doesn't I happen. think that would... It, it does not. Um, that's really interesting. I think, you know, and we can we can talk about Hugo if you want to uh from here but i think him immediately trying to climb the garbage cables or garbage shoots to zalem fits with what they've done with the character oh and again that, yeah. the, the original I, what the original did with the character as well in terms oh, of... Oh, it makes like, it makes sense. I'm not disagreeing with the manner of his okay. death, but rather my disagreement is just that we go simply from him returning from death to dying so quickly that there's no time to... Oh, that's to what I mean, though. Well, not just that he died, but I think it makes sense that he hurt, like, you know, he gets up off the operating table and he's, you know, because he has lived his entire life and put everything of himself into... You know, I'm going to get to Zalem. I'm going to work hard enough to buy my way yeah. up there. And, like, he wakes up from this surgery to the realization mm -hmm. that, like, oh, fuck, I can't. I, now I'm a criminal. I can't I can't get up there that way anymore. Yeah. I mean, I really yeah. can't get up there. So he does this irrational thing of trying to climb up the garbage chute out of desperation. Yeah. Immediately. But, but it, I'm, when I say it happens so quickly, I'm not talking in terms of, like, just him doing it as soon as he gets off the table. But I'm talking in terms of film time. Like, there is not really a lot of time in terms of the film where it, between where he leaves the table and then goes to do that to allow the change that's happened to him to sink in. It's too rushed, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. From a okay. film, from a narrative perspective. Not that it doesn't make sense for his character, but that we're literally going way too fast to allow this big change to him to sink in. Like, I think the first time we see him actually on his feet is on that cable. After, after it happens, I'm like, no, whoa, whoa, slow down. Can we have just a little bit of time to let this change soak in? It doesn't have to be like anything more than like two minutes with Alita. Like, and then he can go do that. Mm. I'm not saying we have an extended like full 30 minutes of him doing shit in the body, but just something. Um, 
But yeah, I think that this is a function, unfortunately, of the film's runtime, that it has to do this kind of exposition in order to get things established that were it a full-blown TV show or a manga or an OAV, it could do more organically. So it's a problem for me, but it's a problem that I understand is kind of an inevitable one. I mean, this is the same for all sorts of, like, um, sci-fi works where they have, you know, exposition dumps to try and explain things. They always have to be structured in a certain way in order to get that across to a character who is an audience proxy, so on, so forth. Um, mm. The other th- problem I have is that... Oh, well, can oh, I sorry, ask you a, d- a question based on something you said? Yeah. Um. So you had mentioned uh, not feeling like Scrap Iron City was kind of um, threatening enough. Um, no. What What did you think of... Uh, I get th- uh, That just makes me want to ask the larger question. The world and the setting... Um, what are your general thoughts and impressions? And then I'll answer that after after I hear yours. Well, the, the f- problem with Iron City being not, like, fresting enough or feeling like it's, like, so run down or, like, you know, that people are living such harsh lives, there's actually a really interesting thing this film maybe realized that I'll elaborate on now, which is that a lot of science fiction often has to actually, like, particularly dystopic ones, has to invent some sort of external threat that makes the, you know, the poor working class, like, you know, that gives them, like, you know, a real danger to face. Because it's, I maybe realize that poverty alone isn't enough anymore for fiction to make us, like, care, because we're too desensitized to it in our actual real life. Wow. Right. Yeah. And that's why this also didn't really sit true, because, like, no one seems to be struggling. Like, Hugo's well-fed, he's looking after himself. Like, Doctor... Only because he's a criminal. Well, yes, yes, but, like... It's also pretty colourful and vibrant, like there's a lot of things going on. It doesn't seem to me like there's any real hardship going on here. Yes, there is, like, you know, criminality in the underworld and all that, you know, and the hunter warriors and such. But that's it. I didn't feel like, you know, I was in some sort of, like, you know, distinct strata of human existence where it was, Mm -hmm. you know clearly you know that the populace were you know suffering and given the film's ending in which alita is like shown to be metaphorically and literally rallying them to take back the floating city of zalem that's a problem and it's especially a problem when zalem itself is not really shown we know it's better because we're told it's better not because we see it i mean if you want a comparison that works on a number of levels there's actually uh what was his name again he was the gentleman who did District 9, and he also did the film I'm going to compare this to, which is Elysium. Now, oh, goodness. Yeah, let's see. I can't remember his name. I'm Googling it, it now. But here's the thing, right? In Elysium, you've got the people living on the ground, and it is a Neil Blomkamp. Blomkamp. That's it, yeah. Like, Neil Blomkamp, he was from Africa, if I recall correctly, and he basically... I mean, yeah, there were criticisms, certainly, of District 9 and its portrayal, for example, of the Nigerian pirates. But, like, he handled, like, the destitute poverty depiction in both those films very well, in my opinion. You got an impression that people were starving and dying and suffering. Um, And then, of course, in Elysium in particular, you had the floating city of Elysium. And what did that city have that made it, like, you know, such a prize? It had medical supplies to help everyone. It was his criticism of a healthcare system, you know, that was too top-ended. What does Zalem have that is so important? Well, again, this is uh, this is in keeping with actually they they stuck to the the adaptation because um, or not no gosh I mangled that <laughs> the adaptation stuck to the source material here because in 
certainly in the OAV, and then the point that I have gotten to in the manga, which is, again, four or five volumes in, um, they do not show Zalem. You, you, it is only a thing that uh, is beyond the reach of the populace, and you know you only hear about it from certain people, hmm. um, and that's and that's how you know it's so great because some people come down and they talk about it, but for the most part, citizens don't see it, and basically are going to live their whole lives without going there. And I actually think thematically that um, that works in favor of some of the stuff the show's trying to do. But I think the movie, Alita, colon, Battle Angel, like, I I think you, I, I, I hear where you're coming from in terms of I think this the other criticism. Problem, I think the other it, problem like, I have as well, it's not just the, it's not that we're just not shown it, but like people don't explain in concrete terms why it's bad. Sure. Like, and I, I, I think you could argue that the movie maybe isn't as much of a success in terms of like a class struggle story. Um, I read it as a religious thing, actually, believe it or not. Um, I mean, okay, that's cool. Cause I have it, I have it as an existentialist religious thing as well, but yes. and also like, I think it, I think you could say that this movie, in my opinion, is an, an unequivocal success as a love story. Oh yes. Um, and as an action movie. Uh, uh... But the, the other things I'm not, um, I, I can see the the debate. I love the action in this shit, but no, I, no. Let me I, pull it back because we're talking about the world. We're still talking about the world. Yeah, I'll come see action. Like there's this one particular thing that kind of undoes it for me, but I also think that might be the point. But I'll save that. Um, so yeah, like a lot of the world building problems here are very fundamental in my opinion, and they make it a bit difficult for me to get behind why, for example, killing Elisa is so important, other than just we know that she's powerful. And that's it. Um, like, why people are so invested in getting to Zalem when everything seems reasonably okay on the surface. I mean, it's not like I say, for example, like Elysium, where I had a very clear, you know, idea of the divide between the wealthy and the poor. Uh, you know, on Elysium. It's only two people, to be fair, in this case. It's only Hugo and uh, the doc and Jennifer Connolly. But, um, I mean, I'm talking about looking at the world, like, you know... That, but I guess like, they're representative of, like, a, you could say... You know, they're just, they are stand-ins for the way a lot of people think, maybe. Yeah. And, I mean, like, I'm talking about just, like, background details. Well, like, the, the world seems very colorful during the day, like, when they have the motorball uh, practice runs, like, you know, in the street, for example. Doesn't exist in the manga. I was okay with that, though. I, li- <laughs> I, li- I like that. I like that. Yeah. I think yeah. The, the introduction of motorball, actually, early in this way is also a good way of getting Alita's, like, ability to fight out there in a way that's not simply her fighting people out of nowhere in the street. I mean, that does kind of happen, but it helps build that up, which I just I do think works. I think that's it. You don't like the the Jason Bourne-esque, like, oh my god, oh my god, and I just did karate. <laughs> like, you know, you're not into that. <laughs> I, I, can, I can understand that in this case, but I think it helps, like, build up to that point where we got to get gradual hints. So, yeah, I think the world building suffers a bit. But I'm okay well, with it in other respects. Um, okay. Because I think that, you know, it can be read religiously. Because, I mean, look at it. You've got heaven. Angel falling yep. from heaven. Cast down. Yeah, hey. Th- and on top of that, Paradise Lost is quoted in this uh, film. Indeed. Better to reign in hell than to serve uh-huh. in heaven. Although yeah. that's the core problem, my will building problem, which is I don't know why that's heaven and why this is hell. 
But isn't that isn't that the the fucking deal with heaven? We don't get to we don't see what heaven. Well, if that we just hear about how great it is. <laughs> yes, uh, but that's the thing. Like that's left for a sequel, and you don't. And I, I if the sequel comes and fills in, that's great. But as it stands, we don't. Well, let's just look at the story. Let's let's not worry about it. But but just what's here. Um, I think it's it's a fantastic depiction of heaven again because you have people that talk about it like they know what it is. You have people that want to go there that have never seen it, mm-hmm. and uh, that they live their whole life in service of something that they've never seen before and have no uh, evidence of is is any better apart from you know what they mm-hmm. hear from people. I think it's a really actually good analogy for the way heaven functions in like our life and our uh, world something intangible yeah i i can yeah. see i can see it like that certainly um but i think that this fully enough is also why i mentioned about the film perhaps not reading cleanly to regular audiences which by the way is not me saying that it should but i think that you know you could argue well i need something tangible to hold on to here as to why you know it's better up there and I, the thing is, like, again, I'm not saying that we need concrete proof necessarily, but take Hugo, for example. If Hugo said, hey, you know what I live on down here? I live on rat meat. You know what they got there? Banquets for all the, you know, all around. Roast hog, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Like, I need some kind of belief to go I with I think that, that they have that scene in the OAV. Yeah. I need, not, I need... It's not rat meat, but it is very much like, uh, you know, hey, like, you know, this is nothing compared to what they eat up there or whatever, you know? Yeah. Like, I, I, yeah, I and I think also on top of that, there's other issues I have, like with oh, we've got the Earth Mars War and all that. Uh, like, okay, nifty background detail, um, but feels a bit thin for my taste. This, this this weighed the movie down for me, and this is where I can join you in being a complete neophyte because, again, in the comics, none of that has been revealed up to the point where I'm at. So, I I think that. While it 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 does play into the idea of Alita needing to discover or rediscover her history and who she was to move forward in a um in a way that is fulfilling to her and feels authentic, um, a lot of that detail, I don't know, it did kind of weigh the movie down a little bit. Like for instance, when they go in the fucking forest and the waterfall. What is the fucking green forest do? I thought like that, you know, I don't know, Scrap Iron City, like, I, I don't recall. And again, maybe maybe this is just part of the universe I haven't gotten to. But like, it sort of feels like the point of Battle Angel Alita is like the setting is such a huge part of it. And the fact that they lived in like a bombed out United States of America where it's all kind of wasteland mm-hmm. feels sort of important. And... But it's pretty I don't know, outside. Like, yeah, it's pretty business yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it, it just, it was like I was like, where are they going? This is, this is unfamiliar. Because again, like the one of the things I really liked about it was just how um, how urban and gritty it was, and even that outside of the very urban environments in Scrap Iron City, like it just was very barren and dirty and. Uh, yeah, that no greenery, like very destitute, and I really like that. And it, but as far as the world itself, I, I 
again, I think this is a, an, an adaptational choice that, uh, that um, I do, I see where you're coming from. Like it, it doesn't feel as dangerous as the way I kind of liked it feeling in the comics, but like yeah. the, because it really did feel that way. It's like, Oh my God, don't, don't go out the door. Like there are horrible people here and there are horrible people in the Cameron Alita as well. Yeah, I will. Um, that will cut you up, but but I like the brightness of the world too. I mean, I think it's a nice change. It's an interest. It it makes it visually really interesting. Mm-hmm. I I will say this: like, um, there are elements of the world building that I actually really really like, though. For example, the bed that Elisa sleeps in with all the toys in the background for the doc, you know, the doctor's dead daughter. Mm-hmm. That's that's your that's your like you know visual clue that he hasn't gone over it. Because he must have left that all in place and never actually taken them out after his daughter's passing. Along with yeah. the fact that he has the body. Like, that's good stuff. That tells me something. And by the way, that is in sharp contrast to the discussion he has with, you know, Christoph Waltz has with Jennifer Connelly about how they lost the daughter and then go over. I'm like, oh, God. That was mm-hmm. that was a bit flatline for me, I must say. Which which bit? The, where, when, where, where they, ha- where e- they have Edo the... said, yeah. I'm over it, you should get over it as well. Yeah, I felt that scene went, went a bit flat for me. I don't feel it like got the emotion across properly that otherwise is, is expressed. And the thing is, like, these are great actors. Like, Christoph Waltz, amazing actor. He's great in everything he touches, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and he's great in this, don't get me wrong. I didn't love him in this. <laughs> I, I think I think he's I think he's solid, but I also think that he's not the right choice for the role he's playing. I can't really, for example, get behind him swinging around a rocket-driven hammer. Like it did it it looked odd. Yeah, it needed, it, we need we needed someone who was a muscle you, man. You, you're about hundred, really. <laughs> we need someone who's a muscle man. But the problem is, he, he he fits the doxa thing very well. And I'm not criticizing him like having the hunter killer, sorry, hunter um, warrior role at all. In fact, that's part of the film's theme. I would argue. But I think mm-hmm. it, I think like him doing the doxa role, great. But he's not fit as a physical action guy, swinging that hammer around. I mean, he's supposed to be taking out cyborgs along the lines of Grishka and like that, but. When we see him fight them, he gets decimated quickly. And yet every time, like he's had before, he's like meant to be doing it so easy. I'm like, it doesn't quite work. I don't know. Um, Grishka, aka Gears of War man. AKA Jackie <laughs> Earl Haley of Watchmen fame and other things. Yeah. So Christoph Waltz, I, I think that again, this just may this may be a sort of east to west um change in the character, because I do think in in a certain way, he's very fatherly, um, and and Ito is very fatherly towards Alita, um, in in the comics. But he's also uh, more jovial. He he puts on a uh, definitely uh, not a front, but like part of his forward facing personality. He's laughing a lot. He's smiling. He's a more of a jaunty, uh, optimistic sort of guy. And I didn't really get that vibe. Uh, definitely, Christoph Waltz felt like more weathered. More beaten down that, by the that, world. That is very and, um, strange because if you've seen him in Django Unchained, for example, he can go between being malicious and you know comedic and bantery on a dime. He is mm. absolute. He's absolutely perfect for that. And in fact, maybe Django Unchained was what inspired them to pick him for this, among some other things. Because yeah. I can see him doing that. He can handle both very well. I mean, heck, his breakout role was in Inglorious Bastards, where in the same scene he went from very jovial to skin crawlingly, like you know, like 
intimidating just mm-hmm. from his mannerisms. I mean, that scene of him like talking to the dairy farmer, I still remember that vividly because I was on the edge of my seat. He's he's a great actor, but I think that it's the physicality element that I have a real problem with here. Seeing him as a doctor and a father figure, no problem. Seeing him as a guy wielding that hammer, eh, not so much. Um, all right. I'm going to mention one other thing about the world building here that I, and this ties into the action, but again, this might be the point. So, man, you were, you were talking about all prop. Can we get a positive for I'm, you? I'm saving all the prop. <laughs> I'm saving the positives to the end because the positive I have is a really, really big one that I'm okay. really, really impressed with this film about. Uh, I want to get out of the way first so people that way don't leave on a sour note. Um, Fair enough. Alita gets a second body, which is called like a berserker thing or whatever, you know. For, yep. It's orig- basically a copy of her original body she had as a soldier on Mars or the moon or wherever. I think it. Was it a copy or was it the bot? The anyway, it does immaterial anyway. Yeah. Please continue. And the thing is, like uh, Dyson says, a great length. This is again a fault of the exposition here. This body is incredibly powerful. You will be untouchable. And the moment he uttered those words, I was like, "That's it. All tension in the action is gone." Are you meaning to tell me that this military grade body that she's got here, that we've seen her fighting on the moon with, and all the other flashbacks we've seen, you know, and she goes into motorball. How am I meant to be afraid that she might lose here? I I mean, it's a good-looking action, don't get me wrong, but action also is predicated on tension and a sense of potential failure. This is why, for it example... Have, it doesn't have to be. Um, no, but if I might point out personally, like, uh, from Ghost in the Shell standalone complex, I'm always fond of bringing up two scenes from that same OAV series, or even same series, rather, where you've got the Major fighting this, like, you know, mech, uh, and she gets, like, trounced by it. But the thing is, she's in a cybernetic body, you know, so she's not, like, you know, in immediate danger of death, necessarily. Mm-hmm. But then in the same show, you've got uh, Togusa, and he's, like, 99%, you know, uh, all, you know, free-range natural human. <laughs> right. And he gets shot by just a regular dude while he's trying to, sh- like, smuggle out this, like, I think it's called the Sunflower Society's, like, ledger or something like that on vaccines. I'm not bore people serve the context. I felt so much more tense over that because I felt that he was vulnerable. Like, you can make great action, like, you know, I mean, like, The Raid, for example, is certainly one of them that will come to mind on Mad Max Fury Road. Um, but I think that, you know, like, if you're going to explain ahead of time how powerful this body is in Elise's case, I mean, it looks good, don't get me wrong, but I didn't feel much of a response to it as a result of that, which I think is a problem. Hmm. Well, so... But, but, there's a scene later on, for example, when Grishka, like, attacks her in the office, um, you know, and wounds her in the hip. Mm-hmm. And it heals pretty quickly. Now, I'm actually okay with that, for reasons I'll get to when I get to the positives. Uh, but I also think that's why I'm saying that maybe it's the point that this body is that powerful. Um, yeah, doesn't it break? No, she just gets wounded, like, at the in the hip. The oh, original... that's right, that's right, that's right. The original and... body breaks. And then, but in Motorball, you know, Ito says, don't break this body because I can't rebuild it. So... It, and, and granted, that happens after the fact of a lot of the shit that you're talking about. But um, I think we're meant to see it as an upgrade, but not as a, you know, God mode. Um, at least felt, that. And that's how it's treated in the comics as well. Yeah, it felt too God mode for me, though. But again, that might be the point. Um, sure. It is, it is fun, in my opinion, though, sometimes when you have a protagonist that's been held down. Yeah. Um to see them obtain something of such power where they can kind of 
mow down all and sundry before them it can be cathartic does it not also seem telling to you though that that scene had to be intercut with hugo being attacked by oh god i've forgotten his name now because i i'm terrible with names i apologize uh being attacked by zapen though like that's the tension Zipan, in that particular right. you know running like 20 15 minutes or so of screen time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because well there's no tension of lisa losing the motorball battle because we've just been told at great length by uh dyson that this body is incredible Right. That's a that's a problem for me. We need to treat oh. threats as we need to take threats seriously, uh, in my opinion, for them to work. And the thing is, like Rodriguez is great action. Don't get me wrong, that scene looked great. It was a good looking action scene. Yeah, because it was like a like a fuck you, um, uh, not Nova. Why can I not think of his name? Oh, the 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 power broker who owns Motorball, um. God damn it. I know his name. Why can I not think of it? Vector. What's his name? Vector. Vector. Uh, it was not, basically mm-hmm. like, a, like a fuck you, Vector. Like, you're going to set all this shit up, and but Alita is not taking this shit anymore. Like, she's got her ultimate weapon, and she's going to destroy everything. But even someone with the ultimate weapon, e- e- you know, e.g. Superman or whatever, can still be hurt if you hurt someone close to them. And so even while she's like, again, laying all to waste, she's still vulnerable because the love of her life, Hugo, who is not someone who can lay all to waste, is in peril. Yes, uh, but Vex's plan, though, was just to simply have him murdered in, in Motorball. Not like the, the thing that's happening sure. in is, is completely sure. and utterly separate. Oh, and I that's know. Why I di- and that's why Vector I didn't feel... <laughs> and that's why I didn't feel so much towards that. But again could be the point which i'll say for a moment so insofar as my criticisms go i think that's really about it i think that okay. i like the character stuff for me mostly works i think dyson's yeah. daughter dying like was to me felt a bit hackneyed in just how i had a junkie come in and he literally lunges for her and then kills her in one go i'm like Whoa. i don't even remember if this is in the original or not <laughs> that, that, that to me like felt a bit much i think you could have literally just cut that out and it would have actually been better for it like mm. just having one random junkie i mean it's not even like you know I didn't get the impression, for example, that Dyson hated all cyborgs as a result of that. Like, if they fleshed out more, I might. No, have he thought, definitely doesn't. I, I like that would have been something, but no, his daughter just died, and that's it, which is weird. Um, but okay, no, so he beca- said- that's why he became a bounty hunter. He wanted yeah. to murder that fool. Yes, with um, a rocket hammer. <laughs> with a rocket hammer, no less. Yeah, that you're, you're right. You're absolutely right, but. It just felt like it happened so quickly, and we only see her the once, and then that's kind of it. Um, sure. It felt it felt a bit rushed again, and again, function of mm-hmm. time. Totally. Like this, this film's got a lot of balls to juggle, and I think that the ones that should spend the most time juggling, it actually succeeds at. So trust me when I, I say agree. that I'm getting these out of the way now, because I don't want to be too critical, uh, even though I spent like a lot of time talking critically about. It. Uh, all right, I'll pass over to you now, Doc. Okay, so um, well, let's let's just talk about like. Let's talk about the characters because uh, um, we talked about like the world a little bit, right? We and some of our issues with it, but I I think generally speaking, again, I really liked it uh, visually. Um, I think you could. I I see the issues that you might have from a a storytelling point of view with the world, um, and and yeah, I had uh, an issue with the fucking lush for us, but the characters, my my favorite thing about the movie like i love um alita 
I think she is tremendous. I love that they have allowed her to retain her like girlish naivete and innocence, especially at the beginning of the story as a mm. contrast with the um, dog eat dog, so to speak world uh, that they live in. Uh, and that really helps um, that that's how kind of she kind of gets swept up into Hugo's world and that she's like, so kind of in love with him and her experiencing like the taste of an orange and her first love, uh, her first uh motorball game um, and if i may add as well uh what i really liked uh, this is me now talking about something positive brace yourselves uh mm. i love how subtly um i'm gonna check the actress name rosa salazar like starts betraying the the arrogance that she feels when she starts like you know intimidating the hunter warriors in the bar yeah like yeah. It feels like a very natural <laughs> progression of her, like, you know, becoming too confident with yep. her s- skills and her body. And that, of course, then bites her in the backside when uh, Grishka sh- shows up and, like, wrecks her shit. Um, I think that was really, really neat. By the way, um, I'm going to address something about CG now, very quickly. Because this is uh, this is what before about this film, and I just want to get this out of the way because if we don't address it, someone will think we didn't notice it. Yes, Elise has got strange looking eyes because that's the affectation you know from the manga. <laughs> we're we're an, over an hour in, and we're <laughs> we're only yeah, we, now talking about the eyes. Yeah, and here's yeah. the thing, right? I am completely and utterly okay with it, and here's why: because that's the point. Because yeah. she is not meant to necessarily like she is a character who's straddling the line between humanity and inhumanity and mm-hmm. having her you know her have a slightly unusual cg face that puts you off edge that's the point it's not for example say in tron legacy where you have cg jeff bridges now in fact tron legacy is actually a wonderful case study in how context can change everything because you have in the same film you see him in real life real jeff bridges you know de-aged through this awful looking cg and it looks terrible <laughs> but then once you get to his like digital counterpart clue inside the world of tron legacy you know the computer world your complete immediately disappears because of course he's meant to look fake and unusual he is a he's a copy of simulacra mm-hmm. like using cg and the uncanny value that comes from that you can again turn a problem into a strength. You make it into something that serves the narrative, serves the film. And that's why having her look like that, I think works brilliantly. Oh, it's, because, it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so if people want to complain that it looks odd and unusual, I'm like, you're missing the point. I mean, I thought so when I first saw the trailer, but like it honestly, like five minutes into the movie, didn't even notice it anymore. Like it's really something you can get used to. And as you, as you said, like thematically, um, I mean, cyberpunk as a as a subgenre, right, is meant to be about like seeing that humanity, like what we kind of define as human and treat as human, shouldn't be limited to what's incarnate in a physical body. Mm-hmm. Um, what's in a what's what is embodied. Like where does the, where does the man begin and the machine? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Where does the machine begin and the man end? That kind of thing, you know. Yeah, I think that is totally like what what is going on here. This the the transhumanist uh, philosophy here, because you know you have um, Hugo's buddy who does not take kindly to Alita at all. Just doesn't like her. The hard body he calls her right because she's pretty much all 
cyborg except for her brain and alita kind of gets distressed by it and like don't you think it's it's weird hugo that i'm not human or whatever and what he says that um you're the most human person i know bam that's it that is like the heart of one of the points that the movie is is trying to get at for sure and it's and it's certainly a that that line itself i'm glad you brought that up because think of it in terms of hugo's overall character he's someone who with no you know real conscience or concern will strip the body parts from other cyborgs and yet here he has one that he's very fond of it's a hypocrisy that like awakens like his better nature and makes yeah. him realize what he's done wrong like it reminds me again of that scene in the original Ghost in the Shell, which is my favorite scene in the entire film, where Basso, like, he's looking at the major as she's getting undressed, you know, from the scuba dive, and he turns away. But the thing is, it's a synthetic body. It's not made of actual, like, man meat, you know? Man it's not, meat. It's not, you know, got pheromones <laughs> or anything like that. But it's because he sees her, like, stripping naked as her exposing herself in a spiritual sense, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. as, as a sense of, as a privacy concern. And that's, you know, interesting that that still remains even when all the human flesh, you know, the thing that people-wise might be interested in, is stripped away. And it's similar here. Yes, and she, another, I I love that you brought up the bar scene and her kind of becoming, like, Alita feeling herself, right? Yes. she thinks, like, I can pretty much take on anybody. I can beat up Sapan. I can take out, you know, all these other guys because... I know Panzerkunst. Uh, I'm I'm a great warrior, although I don't really fully understand my past. Like I'm a badass, and then I love that you know she's got that the she's brought down to earth by Garishka. Um, and I honestly like with, part of the reason I really want the sequel to this movie is because I really love um, Alita who who has lost. Um, I love her post Hugo's death uh, kind of she's been through some personal struggle. She's had her victories. She's lost the love of her life. Um, She still has some mysteries concerning her own nature and origin, but she's kind of wandering the earth or wandering the United States. But like, she's got that real spiritual weariness about her. Like I've seen some shit and Mm. like, I, I love that we get all those beats because like, man, if there's a sequel, like, I can't wait. Like, I really like Alita carrying her grief around is, is mm. kind of one of my favorite modes of that character. Yeah, I would agree. So is now a good time for me to lay into the big theme, the thing that I like the most about this film? Oh, can we, do you want to talk about Hugo first? Oh, yeah, let's talk about Hugo. Um, So you said um, name, uh, what's is it, Kean Johnson? Yeah, Kean Johnson. Yes, thank you. Um. He's like super likable in this movie, unbelievably likable. And I'm so happy because if they just brought over wholesale to Hugo from the original stuff, like I kind of hated him (laughs) in some ways. I mean, Mm. I'm just like, Alita, what do you see in this asshole? (laughs) It's like, you know, because he right up until the very end, like he does not change his ways in terms of being a someone who strips cyborg parts um basically what happens is he and his boys get caught by uh, a guy that is i think it might even be zapan someone too powerful for them 
and Alita comes to save the day, and it's just like she's like, "Oh shit, I found you out! You're like you're doing this crime." Um, but he never has that same moment that he has in this movie where he says, "I'm out. That's it. Like I, I want to be a better person." Um, maybe, maybe in the original, he had like he has his kind of moment of salvation right before he dies, and certainly here you know, he says, thank you for saving me right before he falls to his death. Um, but I just, I, I like the character here so much more. Like he, in in the original, it seemed like he was interested in using her, that he mm-hmm. saw her as kind of a fun distraction and maybe a way to like, I don't know, um, again, to, to someone to use to get what he wanted somehow. But in this movie, like, I think it really does succeed as a love story because you could just tell he comes around and he really cares about her. Um, and it's it's awesome. It's awesome. And that whole scene where she offers him her heart yeah. is, like, the greatest thing ever. It's, it's, it's like, very, so it's very, cheesy. It's very schmaltzy, <laughs> but I think, like, that is part of, like, her character, like, that naive state. She, mm-hmm. she is a believable teenage girl, like, in that respect. Like, if you don't understand, like, literally this thing you have it's a material object like you know it's something that she just feels she can give away because it's and indeed that again points to like you know the difference between these kind of relations which in itself is fascinating like you know when your whole body can be given away yeah. also see also that hugo is a part stripper and she, he she's mm. literally giving him her heart which is like the most powerful piece of equipment probably on the continent yeah and it can and power took, the city <laughs> yeah it is it is like the most expensive thing that he would ever salvage and, he's and he didn't do it. it. <laughs> he didn't do it. He didn't do it. No, uh, which is also also gives a really really good lesson that I am. Um, I think a lot of people, probably myself included, probably learned to take to heart, which is you know don't give too much of yourself to others or all of it. Yeah, I think that's a very yes. mature lesson that I really very, like. Very yes, hard agree, hard agree, and and I, I just like the character as a as a good person caught up in something shitty, and I think. W- the way he hit me in other versions of this story is, you know, kind of a shitty person who mm. was changed by, uh, or, or kind of started to come around because he they was met touched this, by an angel, this incredible person. Whereas here, it really does seem like that he's a good guy and he's yeah. just caught up in it. And he just needed someone, something to, like you said, show him, hypocrisy of his ways show him like that there is kind of a better way to live and yet still i think you know he is not that's not the end of the character arc he's not totally simple because he still and all like his dream is still to go to zalem not to settle down with alita and he doesn't he doesn't realize that like again like this is where I think the existential themes of the story come in. Like he's still obsessed with like the something beyond the bounds of his own existence, right? Like mm. what Zalem represents still obsessed with heaven, with the eternal. That's yeah. still everything to him. Even after he dies uh, and comes back, he's in, instead of getting up and, you know, making a life with Alita, he runs up Zalem and he doesn't realize until it's far too late that his you know happiness everything he could 
dream about having all the good things are right here in front of him like that it's a reign the, in hell than to serve in heaven yeah and like that so you know you could if, if you want to extrapolate right you could say like zalem kind of represents like transcendence like an something that you want to attain that's beyond the bounds of your experience but he's looking for it and he's looking for it and he's looking for it and he's looking up and he's looking away from this life when really i think the best we as human beings can hope for is to find what kierkegaard calls i think eternity in time mm. um you hear people talking like use the phrase like you know, this moment will last forever in my heart or like mm. you'll always be with me and stuff like that. It's not literally true, but like experientially rather than empirically, like it can be true. Like if you you can attain something like that, a sort of tr an experience that transcends time and space, like with another person. Yeah. Um, and like she was right in front of him uh, the whole time or at least for a little while. And it's just such a sad, sad tragedy that he really didn't didn't yeah. see it until it was too late for him. Still chasing, you know, uh, a story rather than you know something so concrete that was in front of him. Yeah, it is. It, now that you put mention like that, like I probably will actually take back some of my criticism of like his death because yeah, it is like the immediacy of which he goes for, even though it's right there in front of him. Yeah, that is. Damn, you're right. I mean, right. in, in a sense, you're just like, Hugo, you fucking idiot. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but like, but if you've lived your whole Deploying life Deploying the fidget you know? spinner. <laughs> God damn it. I love ruining oh, stuff for you. Man, it just, it just really, really enriches my day. Back in the day, of course, when I watched the OAV, I was like, oh, it's the Pog Slammer. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. Oh, man. Well, all right. So, like that—that's sort of why a lot of the reasons why I think that there are existentialist kind of tones in in the story. Um, but so, do you think, Shadon, that the movie, like, a, as a sort of uh, class consciousness kind of thing, do you think that it works from that point of view particularly well? No, I don't think it does because again, we don't have a solid like understanding or grounding of what the upper class is. We only know that it's a thing that you aim for, but I think that if you want to like deal in class consciousness or class war or like you know differences, you can't do that as more of a metaphysical thing. You need to start like actually laying some solid groundwork on what the differences are. Interesting, interesting, okay. That's my um, feeling. Okay. Um, I mean, I... I think that I think that to like to expand what you said about Hugo, though, like about how he was searching for that other place, and that he, you know, didn't realize he had Elisa in front of him all along. Like that works, but I think that that's because, like, you know, we have an understanding there of what he already had, and I would be more willing to buy into the whole, you know, class consciousness thing if, again, I felt the world building of Iron City was more like you know fleshed out so i could understand exactly why it was so bad down there even if they were you know going to have to go into that route that i mentioned before where they have like a plague of some description or you know like something that's invented to go along with it because we're too like desensitized to poverty and like mm. existing class discrepancy and all that i don't think it does um well, here's what i here's what i like about those aspects of it i'll tell you and it may 
it may not be um it may not work for everyone right but it's two there's two elements of it that i think actually really do work well one is the absurdity of the class divide um honestly there's no reason that is pointed out like why certain people are in Zalem other than like they're born there and class is something that you generally speaking are born into like uh, you know well, of that, course well, that's it's, it. it's well, possible they, to work your yeah. way up but it's very difficult and that's not an opportunity that many people get it's increasingly more difficult to do that kind of thing and have that mobility yep social um, mobility for example in the UK where I live is a it's a pipe dream ironically enough mm, right <laughs> um, yeah, and on top of that, one of the biggest predictors of your own wealth will be that of your parents' wealth. Not yeah. because they necessarily will give it to you directly, but rather because it will influence, you know, your environment. Do you grow up with adequate nutrition? Do you grow up in comfort? Do you grow up and then go on to a good school? And so on and so on and so on. Um, so, yeah. I, again, so, just think, I, I just wish that, you know, the set standards of, you know, low, like, working class versus, like, the the wealthy in this film were more defined rather than being more conceptual? Sure. Um, well, let me let me try to sell you one more time. I'll, I'll get the second point of it that I actually really like is, so there's a, a range of responses you could have to being born in the lower class, right? One is I'm going to work my ass off and move up. Mm-hmm. That's, that's Hugo. And in trying to do that um, by legal and extra legal means, um, he is totally used up by the the system that is designed to support the upper class at the expense of of the working class. Everything they leave policing, they leave everything like to like all the work to the laborers. Mm. And Hugo again tries to work extra hard to get enough money or whatever, and basically he learns at the end that there is no amount of money that can actually do this. Like, because I mean, and, and who knows, maybe vector is wrong. Maybe there is, but for whatever reason, the keeper of the keys vector, like there ain't no way of getting up to Zalem unless like he chops your body up and send it as parts. Like it is like you, you know, you use the phrase pipe dream. It's a pipe dream to want to go up to Zalem. It ain't real, but he tried to do it the honest way and he was killed. And Alita's response, I think the correct response is like, Okay, then. No more fucking uh, going up the ladder like a hardworking per. Let's tear the fucking system apart. Let's yep. rip it down because it is unfair and it is using all of us. And there's no real reason. You know, just like being born wealthy is not a real reason to be above anyone else and have more. Like, there's no real reason uh, that we should be, like, in this garbage pit and that they should be up there living large. Uh, and so let's mobilize and let's do a revolution. Let's do a revolution. Mm-hmm. And like as as the response to everything Zalem represents, I think that's the appropriate one. And I like that in the movie. And those two aspects of Alita colon Battle Angel colon class warfare um, <laughs> wor- works for me. Those work for me. Call, call, call of Juicy modern class warfare. <laughs> Exactly right. Yeah. Yes. Call of Duty um, colon fuck capitalism. <laughs> well, okay. Um, I still don't feel it, but I will put this on the board, which is to say that the film does end with, like, Elisa, like, 
figuratively starting a revolution. This isn't something like explicit, but you can see like of all the people cheering for her and her raising the sword up against Zorn. Like that's the intent. So if there is a sequel, that would be the thing they should lean into the most. I think that rather the story is instead is more about something else that I'll get into in a moment rather than being about class. Okay. Uh, that doesn't mean you can't talk about it, of course, but I don't think that either by intent or just by omission that that was really what ended up the film ended up going for for me. All right, so now is the time for the big talking point. Let's talk about nature versus nurture. Your Let's... favorite theme. <laughs> oh, I, lo- I love that. I really it's do. It's great. It's great. But But here's the thing, right? It's very easy for for a story like this where you have a character like, I mean, I'm thinking of, for example, the film Hannah, uh, which also became an Amazon Prime series, about, okay, you have a girl. You take her into, like, you know, this super secret training program and you turn her into an assassin or a soldier. And then, you know, you then have the after effects of that, which is, you know, that, oh, what a horrific and terrible thing that was done to them, you know, that they would trained against their will. I mean, this is Violet Evergarden, for example. I mean, mm, you could, mm-hmm. I'm sure that you and I could name a hundred pieces of fiction that fit this mold. But what I think is actually to Elise's credit that makes it go a little bit beyond this concept is it doesn't simply go that this happened was bad. Now, don't get me wrong. It is still bad in my opinion, but it never belabors the point. But rather, what the point it is making is that it is not the fact that Elisa was like, trained to be an assassin that's a problem, but rather the problem is how does she then use those skills? It's okay for her to be a warrior. She embraces that. That's something she says herself. Like, you know, become the... I think that that was Dyson's words. Yep. You know, become the warrior you were meant to be. It's not a question of, like, you know, being taken away, you know, to learn how to fight, like that, you know, girls should never be warriors or anything, but rather the problem is that you are being made to fight for something that you don't believe in. And I really, really appreciate that element of the film that Elisa, in the end, does not reject her warrior identity in favor of peace and quiet, but rather chooses to utilize it for something that she believes in for herself. That, I think, is a real strength of the film, that it's more complicated than this simply bad all around, but rather the good came out of it. Mm. Not saying that she should have really gone through it in the first place, but rather that, you know, it's never a question of what we know, like in terms of our skill set or the technology we use. Even this is me going into the amorality of technology, which in itself is a big deal. Uh-huh. But it's how we use it. It would be very easy, for example, to have this film like be the point where, hey, she puts on the berserker armor and suddenly she loses all her like built up humanity over the course of the film and just goes <laughs> on a killing spree because you know it's all about like the body you wear. No, the film's better than that, and I think that is to its absolute credit and. That is true also of the other characters. Like, maybe not so much nature and nurture. Maybe that's the wrong term. Oh, wait, but hey, the role... Um, the, the, sorry? I'm so sorry. I, I need to... Uh, I will be right back. Just give me two seconds. Sure.
All right, carry on. Okay. So maybe nature versus nurture is the wrong term to use. But rather, I think that, you know, you could then read it as a role kind of thing. Like, who do I want to be? We've already discussed Hugo. You know, do I want to strip people for parts or do I want to be better than that? Then there's, of course, Dyson. Who do I want to be? Do I want to be the doctor who, you know, like puts people together or do I want to be the hunter warrior who takes them apart? And the film never, like, you know, goes all in on, you know, violence or conflict is wrong, but it's the reasons that we do it are that are important. Like, for example, simply doing, like, the hunter-killer thing, sorry, hunter-warrior, I don't like to keep saying hunter-killer, uh, for <laughs> Dr. Dyson, like, doing that as, like, you know, a thing to soothe his, like, you know, issues over his dead daughter, notwithstanding the film's relatively weak depiction of that, in my opinion, it is at least clear that that's not a good thing for him, whereas him actually doing it to help defend Alita... Like, that's more like, you know, when that skill set is worthwhile. Even Hugo's, like, skill set with his bombs and stuff like that, you know, he uses it to fight off Japan and then, like, help Elisa out, you know, on at least one occasion. That in of itself is also, like, you know, a, a good thing. It's not a question, like I say, of what we know and what technology we have, what parts we have, etc., that matters. It's how we use them that's important, and we use them to help and better other people. And I think that's really, really good on the film's part. Yeah. Yeah, that's I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. I think that is absolutely there. I think you know, it kind of goes along with the whole uh notion of cyborgs and cybernetics, right? That you can kind of build your identity. Um mm-hmm. build who you want to be, you know. We'll take Zapan as an example. <laughs> right. Oh, he 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 certainly he certainly worked very hard on that. I'm surprised he didn't like you know do the full PC case building thing and start putting LEDs in. <laughs> do you rec- do you reckon he's water cooled? Oh my god. Um, I-, I actually was a little bit sad that he met his end in the way he did because, like, I think at least twice in the comics, like Alita believes she's killed him. And he just comes back for her. He becomes oh. completely obsessed with stalking her. So he's the bando of this film. <laughs> no, that's right. I suppose he is, but I like him far more uh, than than I ever liked. Being I mean, dead. Bando became a cyborg and elven lead. I'm just saying, motherfucker. <laughs> oh, um. Okay. Um. Gosh, now you've by introducing Bando, you've thrown off my whole my whole train of thought. <laughs> yeah, but um, but oh, okay. So like um, what do you think? So so we have this the notion of like kind of choosing, uh, kind of choosing your destiny, right? Like uh, moving forward in a way that you feel best expresses who you are. Um. What did you make of Alita's, like, seeming to say, well, t- to do that, you have to reckon with your own personal history? Because I it, think, se- it yeah. seems like, you know, her kind of, she really, really needs to find out, like, who she was. She's very, and that's, I mean, that's quite, you know, normal, I think, if you're an amnesiac. But, um... But yeah, I think before she really is able to take steps forward in her life, it seems like she has to be able to really like understand the full context of who she is and and kind of what she did 
uh, before she can authentically move forward. Do you think that this is just like, oh, this is just the Alita character, or do you think this is like the a, a part of the message? It can go either way, to be honest. Like, I think that it depends on how you want to see it philosophically, because you could you could argue that I mean, Alita does well for herself before she even learns like a fraction of her like true identity. Like the only mm-hmm. thing. In fact, you could argue this is maybe a weakness of the film that we don't get more details on, like, the relation she had to the other soldiers, for example. Um, Because, like, the thing that shines through from her memory, first and foremost, is her combat ability, the Panzer, whatever it was that you mentioned. Um, Not so much... Panzer Kunst, that's it, yeah. But not so much, like, the memories of individual, like, soldiers that she worked with. So maybe that should have actually been fleshed out more now that I think about it to try and get into what you're saying there. But, I mean, it depends on how you want to view it. Like, you can either have the philosophical argument that you must know who you were originally said and reject it or accept it, or you can just go on anyway with who you are regardless. Yeah, I kind of uh, like that more. <laughs> I like the latter more in some yeah, ways. I, I um, would agree. Um, I don't know. I The thing is, though, like, I don't think, again, like, to talk about the class divide, like, but also with, in this case, I don't think we get a strong enough sense of who Elisa was prior to you know the memory loss Mm -hmm. this is i suspect something the sequel would have elaborated on um to truly make a comparison between where she was then and where she is now Mm -hmm. um so i don't feel equipped necessarily to answer that based on the material the film gives us because she always seems like a good person regardless Uh, and indeed this is also then tied into the nature of the mars you know earth conflict which is why was it happening you know, was which side was in the right and which side was in the wrong. We're both in the wrong, even, you know. Were there no, you know, there's no good people in war? Like, you know, what were her viewpoints yeah. on it? So, yeah. Yeah, I feel... And she this... doesn't know that, you know what I mean? <laughs> At least I don't think she does. Yeah. So, I don't know, to be quite honest, how to feel about that. Yeah. Because I don't think the film elaborates on it sufficiently for me to have a perspective on it. But I acknowledge that, again, this is, like I said, with many of the film's problems, you are on a very, very tight time frame here to get everything in that you need to do so. And I wonder, again, if this would have been better as a TV show. I think regarding who is in the right, I I think we're given enough information broadly like that. I mean, you can infer, like, you know, that because the floating cities exist in the first place. But again, that is tied into my complaints about the weakness of how that is displayed. Um, it feels again like more this act, like the whole Mars, like you know, Earth War thing is just background to explain why she was fighting to begin with. Which I feel, if concerned, you were planning on making this into a trilogy, uh, you probably could have dropped the actual Mars context entirely. Have the the second act be about the rediscovery <laughs> of of everything, but uh, but I guess like. I guess, like, they wanted to tie that to the physically her being connected to the Berserker body. And I think you probably needed that in this movie. I don't know. I don't know. Um, Okay. Uh, What are your, like, did you have any other specific points? Or do you want to talk, like, overall final thoughts? I'm otherwise good. Like, I don't think I have much else to add, like... I mean, okay, I'll say this, like, again, just to go back to the visuals, like, okay, Iron City didn't feel, like, you know, intimidating or dangerous or dirty or decrepit, but it still looked good. Like, the visual design of this film in general, in my opinion, is fantastic. 
Mm-hmm. You won't hear me complain about that. Like, my complaint is just about how it's used. I think the script is probably the weakest part of the film, even though when it hits, it hits really well, in my opinion. The micro-level stuff of all the character work, I think, is great, save for some spotty moments here and there. Um, But I, I think, again, like, Elisa is a film that is ambitious but l- limited by its format. That's my... Uh, yeah. That's my takeaway from that. Like where I, I can, I, I might not like, you know, say, I might say, for example, this didn't work for me, but I'm not saying it didn't work for me because, oh God, I hated it. Like, you know, what we presented was garbage, but rather because I think it was a film just too deeply constrained by, you know, Hollywood, by time. Mm. Um, and by also, I think going too far to try and please fans as well. Now, could be. Yeah. I again admit, I don't know anything about the original material, but I get the impression from what you said about it being a greatest hits. Like, you know, that they were trying to put a lot of, like, references to lore and such that certainly would appeal to the fan base, but doesn't also really feel conducive to the flow of the film. I think it's, al- you... it's almost like they didn't believe they would get a sequel, but that the, yeah. despite leaving the opportunity, the, the need for one so that fans could cry out for one, definitely. But, like, there were probably, it feels in some ways like they were like, okay, but we probably won't get one. And we, we should do the whole. Mm. <laughs> no. Yeah, I would talk, talk about talk about motorball. Do the <laughs> motorball part because the motorball parts. Uh, this is the thing I want. Is, is like, um, if you if you like this movie, like, definitely, definitely, definitely read Ganmu, uh, the Battle Angel Alita manga because yeah. it is stupendous. Like, uh, this th- there's. This movie has a spirit all its own, but it is clearly like the manga is its ancestor. Like I was worried when it's like, oh, good, a PG thirteen, you know, Hollywood Battle Angel Alita movie. Like this is gonna feel really sanitized, but it really, really didn't. Like there was plenty of cyborgs getting cut up. Yeah. Uh, all that, like, the, the you know, when you're a teenager, you're like, oh, this fucking badass gore. Like, people, like, ripping cyborgs' spines out. Like, all that shit is in the movie. And that is part of what, like, that's part of the flavor of it for me. Part of why I like it is that that gritty, <laughs> gory, you know, nonsense. Um, and it's, you know, in a movie where, like, you know, death rollerball is a thing you you kind of <laughs> need that in my opinion and they have it and it's it's great i i wish that she would have kept the blood under her eyes the whole time because like i feel like in the mo- does that i can't remember if that goes away in the manga and i don't it's on there for a while um maybe she replaces it with paint when she's a motorball but there are these like the the art in it is incredible especially like I don't know, some of the chapter ending and chapter opening shots just look superb. And mm. um, it's so good. But getting away from that, Alita colon Battle Angel, the Rodriguez Cameron film, I think is great. It's a great movie all on its own. Um, it, it is a great advertisement for the manga. But again, I think it does enough to distinguish itself and uh, yes, be, become a distinct thing apart from it where you don't, you don't have to. You don't have to be like, well, if I want the full Alita experience, I need to like. I don't think you necessarily have to do that. Like, and 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 this could become kind of its own universe, uh, its own sort of take on the Alita story. It does enough that's different, 
and it looks yeah. spectacular. And I I love the karate fighting. I, I love all the hand to hand combat and the sword mm. fighting and all that shit in this movie. It, I think it's indeed great. that's that's actually in its own way that it's restrained on her part, like that she's not you know covered in blades or some nonsense like that. Leave that to the others. Leave that to the freak show enemies, but let her just fight relatively conventionally. That yeah, she, she is, knows is the the lost you know hand to hand combat art. She doesn't need a, a weapon. She she knows she knows the hand to hand combat art of striking the joint that was assembled at five pm on a Friday. <laughs> Yeah. Man. All right. Uh, I'll I'll go into my closing thoughts now. Okay. And Elisa fans, please just hear me out on this before you kill me. <laughs> like, I think that if you were to go into Elisa Battle Angel in general with a surface level understanding of it, you might think self, well, good God, it's just another ghost in the shell. Blah, 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 blah. Who cares? I don't believe that. I thought the love element, as you mentioned, was really compelling. And I think that it works with the character drama as well between Hugo and Elisa. Like, again, his conflict, like, I can, you know, tear apart these people, no problem, sell them parts, but here's someone who I see is more than that, which speaks to the transhumanism element. Like, at what point do we stop seeing people as people and see them as machines or things to be harvested? That is really neat. I think that, you know, the idea of, like, it's not a question of, like, you know, what we know or what we have, but rather how we use it that's important. I think that's also really key. I mean, that's the whole idea of rebellion, you know. The the established mm-hmm. order is wrong, and we will use whatever tools we have to overthrow it. The tools themselves are not inherently profane. So I think that's really neat. Um, the visual design is great. All the acting is mostly solid. Um, like, Rosa, I think her name was. I'm just going to check again. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I guess I'm so bad with names. Rosa and Keenan, like, they have good chemistry. They yes. work really well for me. Christoph Waltz is great. His fault is just that I think he's miscast for the element of the physical fighting. But as far as his, like, Doctor-like scenes, like where he's playing Doctor Dyson rather than Hunter Warrior Dyson, he nails that. Japan. Uh, Japan rules. Ed's great. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's, he's, he's campy, but he's campy in a great way. <laughs> he's such a fucking and like, so is Jackie O'Haley. I hate him. But he's great. Yeah, like the villains are fantastic. Uh, visual design spot on. Sounds spot on. The thing I say that just feels limp to me relatively is just the the script and the world building. But I accept that you know there's always going to be growing pains with adapting a well-established work like this. And trying to perform the really hard task of pleasing fans while also, you know, appealing to a wider audience without... Because, I mean, you know, you don't want to be diluted. You don't want to lose what makes it special in the first place. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, for example, Elise's eyes. Like, come on. There's a reason that's there. And people, like, were still, like, you know, complaining about it, saying it's weird and unusual. Like, no, you... you there's a reason for that, and you've got to carry that over. Like, that's a part that must... It stays true to the spirit of the work. I overall enjoyed my time with Elite Battle Angel. And I think that, you know, any real criticism I have of it in general is something that I can lay blame at, uh, lay, sorry, lay the blame at the feet of just the model in which it was produced more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Elise's greatest enemy is Hollywood. Like Hollywood <laughs> standards, you know. Holly, Hollywood's requirements for making a film where they wanted to turn it into a trilogy. Like that's that's the thing everyone wants. Like, you know, sure. you want a trilogy or you want an MCU, you want a you want a cinematic universe. <clears throat> but then of course, you know, in order to get that going, you have to establish like plot threads for later films and like hints of things to come, which this film certainly has. Because, you know, Zerum is like, whatever it's called, is still there, as opposed to being destroyed at the end. Um, 
but the fact that you spend time on those and not on the actual immediate story then weakens your chances of getting a sequel in the first place because people won't go watch it or like they'll tell people I think well, don't bother it's not you know it's not conclusive enough for my tastes like often trilogies are a product of happenstance where the original first film is that successful because it's standalone and complete mm-hmm. so you can kind of see like how this film was I'm not going to say doomed to failure because I don't think it failed either creatively or critically even really, or even financially in the end. But I think it was doomed to become a cult classic in the way that you say it will, Doc. And I believe that. I believe given more time, it will be appreciated for what it is. But I also think because of that, like, you know, it's a shame it never got to, you know, a wider audience in the first place, but people just give it a chance. Especially, you know, in the means in which it was made, where I wish, again, maybe this would have been better as a Netflix TV show or Amazon Prime. You know, you do one episode a week, get out there, you know, gets really popular, gets people engaged with it, and you then don't have to tell such a constrained story. You can be more flexible with it because you have more runtime. You have more structure to it. Mm-hmm. Um, And I do think, as well as you say, that one of the things I like about the materials well that I can see, even regardless of it in this film, it feels distinct and interesting enough to be its own thing without drawing comparisons to Ghost in the Shell, for example, or Blade Runner, or any other thing that I can think of. So Which is which is great. The world needs more original cyberpunk shit. Yeah, I'm I mean, yeah, exactly. For all that I think that this could have been much better and much more interesting to me, I'm glad it was made, because it gives me a little bit of optimism that we're still not entirely, you know, giving up on making unique works like this. We're still willing to try. I didn't see, for example, Jupiter Ascending. Like Mm-hmm. complete you know didn't succeed at all but at least it was original at least yeah. it was new it wasn't like you know watching a new star wars film be cranked out for the like the hundredth <laughs> time that you couldn't give a toss about like you know it's something refreshing and different even if it isn't like a complete success and in fact that's why i probably end up describing at least in the end as my final summary it's an incomplete success i think that's very fair i mean to, setting aside all the like love and nostalgia that I have for the franchise as a whole. I think that's a fair way to look at the movie and like, but I think, you know, I still can love things with flaws and I, I recognize that this is a flawed film, but I still, well, it's how you put it with me. Right. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Um, uh, you have no flaw, Shadon. You were, you were without flaw. Unlike Alita colon battle angel. Um, but flawed though, it, <laughs> flawed though it may be, it is a thing that I still really, really, really like. Nay, love. I love it. I think it's. It was a. It was a better Terminator film than Terminator Genesis, anyway. <laughs> God, that was a pile of oh, dog shit. <laughs> tremendous movie. Um, <clears throat> you know Jennifer Connelly in it. You know, great. I she's a boyhood crush of mine, so find it hard to criticize. Mm-hmm her stuff but um but no like okay so the movie yeah i i love it thematically i think it it kept a lot of the great things i love about the alita setting and uh the themes and of course the characters um and again that uh like hyper violent dirty grittiness but made it its own in, in a way that I really appreciate a lot. And I think, again, like, if you love the manga, you should see this movie. And if you love this movie, you should read the manga. Um, they both, I think, complement each other quite well. Um, and this mm-hmm. is thankfully not one of those situations where, like, you know, a lot of times when, when a manga gets turned into an anime, 
it's like, well, I've, I've read or seen the one and the adaptation is so slavish that I don't really have to see the other. I'll just pick up yeah. where it leaves off. I, but this I one you get, could, you yeah. can go through. It again. <clears throat> I do get the impression that my complaints would fall away in face of like the actual manga. Again, it's a, it's a function of it's creation and conception in that particular system. So, hmm. But, but I yeah, do. I, I, I enjoyed my time of it. I enjoyed my time of it. I enjoyed talking with you about it as well, Doc. Oh yeah, this was fantastic. And hey, uh, if you enjoyed us talking about a thing, uh, then consider becoming our patron. If you head on over to patreon.com slash waruidesho, that's W-A-R-U-I-D-E-S-H-O-U, you can sign up. We have three budget-friendly tiers, different rewards like uh, Discord access and roles. We got uh, the ability to vote in polls to... uh, find out, uh, or, or to help decide, rather, what we're going to cover anime-wise, uh, access to shows, uh, early access, exclusive access to different content we make, all sorts of things. So do check that out. Um, but if you're not able to financially support us, you could always just hit the old subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, YouTube, SoundCloud. We're everywhere. Um, you can reach us on Twitter at Show, or you can talk to us individually. Shadon, where are you? Uh, I'm at Shade and Tencel on Twitter. Feel free to ask me about anything and everything. And I am at the Subtle Doctor. No spaces, no caps necessary on Twitter. That's just the Subtle Doctor. You don't have to actually type the words the Subtle Doctor. No spaces, no caps. Yes, that will be. Yeah, don't don't go on that Twitter long. account. That's some, that's some depraved shit. Jesus, that's, it's please NSFW NSF anything. Stay away. Um, but yeah, that's going to do it for this very special edition of our After Hours show. Um, for those of you thanks who are jo- yeah. patrons, for- <laughs> uh, we love you and appreciate you. Thanks, and thanks for Indeed. listening, everybody. Thanks for joining us for Elisa Hours. It is. Uh, it has been Alita-loving hours, but now they must end. So from Shadon, I am the Subtle Doctor. We are Waray Desho, and embrace each other, everyone, to the ends of the universe. Good night. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,